You're listening to the Crossroads Grace Podcast, a podcast of Crossroads Grace Community Church. To learn more about our gathering times and ways you can get involved, check out our website at crossroadsgrace.org. Today we are kicking off a brand new series, and it is a series that I've wanted to do for quite some time now, and it's called 316, 316. Now my guess is that if you grew up in church, the second that you see 316, you instantly think of the most famous verse, right? John 316. And if you were to ask somebody, hey, quote a Bible verse in the Bible, or if, if you didn't even know the Bible, and they're like, hey, you gotta, what, what verse do you know? Many people would say John 316, because you, you see it everywhere, don't you? You'll see it at football games behind the goalposts. You'll see it behind home plate at baseball games. You'll see it on Tim Tebow's eye black when he's playing football. You'll even see MMA fighters that'll have sweatbands that'll have it on there. It's, it's everywhere, because it's a pretty good verse, right? Let's just be honest. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Pretty good verse, right? Can't really argue with that one. That's a sweet one. But as I, start, as I read through my Bible... I couldn't help but notice that every time I ran into another 316 verse, those were also awesome. And I'm a super nerd, so what I did is I just went through the whole Bible and I looked at all the 316 verses that I found to see what I could find. And what I, under, what I uncovered was, was really cool, really cool stuff. But let me clarify a few things before I get too far into the series, because I think it's important to know that number one, uh, the Bible wasn't written with chapter and verse markings in it. Like that's not how Paul or John or anybody wrote the Bible. It really wasn't until, until the 12th century that a man by the name of Stephen Langton, he was the one that created the chapter divisions in the Bible. Then in 1551, Robert Esteen, he added the verse divisions to his Bible. And then the first full translation with both chapter and verse came out in 1560 to the Bible. So it didn't happen right away. The second thing to note, though, is that not every book of the Bible has a 316. Because some of the books, uh, some of the letters and the chapters in there don't have three chapters. Some of them don't have as many as 15 or 16 verses in chapter three, so there's not some in there. So it, it's not everywhere in the Bible. But I'm also not a conspiracy theorist. That's the third thing to mention to you, okay? So we need to be make sure that we don't put too, too much spiritual weight into the numerology of these verses. There isn't some secret book of the Bible that gets unlocked, like a video game cheat code if you add three plus one plus six, and divide it by the weight of Absalom's hair when it was cut, you know, which is five pounds, by the way, if you're curious, right? That's interesting. Um, I, I don't think that the 316s, like, unlock a door behind the Golden Gate Bridge that somehow tells us when Jesus is coming back, okay? So I'm not a conspiracy theorist when it comes to that. But the final thing is, is that not all the 316s of the Bible are instant classics. Let me give you an example. First Kings 316 says, now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. Um, we're not teaching your kids that, okay, just to let you know, we're not, you know, yeah, just to let you know, okay? Not gonna be on a billboard anytime soon, that one. But I will say that the lion's share of the 316s in the Bible, pretty powerful, pretty powerful. So at first, what I wanted to do when I was thinking of this series, I thought, you know what, what if we just poke around at some of these 316s in the Bible and see what happens? Because originally there was no overarching theme to it except like let's plug 316 in the Bible GPS and just see where God takes us. And that would have been cool just to do that too. But as I read more of these verses, I realized 
that there's just more than just an interesting coincidence that happens there. Because as I read, what I could see is that they were really describing something very important to us as Christians. They were pointing out what a disciple or a follower of Jesus should be marked by. And, and being a disciple of Jesus is what Jesus ultimately wants all of us to do as followers of his. We see him spell it out very, very clearly in the Bible. John chapter eight would tell us this. He says, to the Jews who had believed in, G in, in him, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus says, Luke chapter six, verse 40, it says that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's what a disciple does. Matthew 28 tells us very clearly, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So being a disciple is part of the expectations of a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked a little bit about that when we talked about gritty faith, having a gritty faith. And part of being a gritty faith and a gritty Christian is being a gritty disciple and a disciple that gives to the local mission of the church, that serves others with their abilities and their talents, that gathers together in community to learn about Jesus with other people, and that engages in the, in the life of the church and in the life of other people. But the other part of being a gritty, having gritty faith or being a disciple of Jesus is that at some point you wanna raise up disciples who are followers of Jesus, who tell people about Jesus, who tell people about Jesus. So as I read through a few of these 316s, um, they were almost always describing what a disciple who follows Jesus looks like. And the more that I read them, the more that I wanted to be marked by them as a disciple. I wanted them to be a constant reminder for me in my life that I could point back to of what a true follower of Jesus looks like in his doing. It was almost like a figurative tattoo that we were talking about, right? Now, for a brief moment, I just wanna calm anyone down here who's opening up a email to me right now or is sweating profusely about me talking about tattoos, okay? Let's just relax, deep breath. We're good, all right? Because I know for some people, like, this is radical to talk about a tattoo and, you know, when it comes to your life. Then other people are like, ah, no big deal. I got ink everywhere, right? Um, it, here's the deal. Um, I'm a blank canvas. My wife's not. So let's just be clear. I'm not condoning or condemning this idea. But rather, what I'm trying to do is make an illustration, making a point about how these 316 verses really should mark us as a disciple of Jesus. How you choose to allow that to mark you is up to you but it shouldn't, it shouldn't negate the fact that they should impact us somehow. And even the ones that we're not gonna get to, the other 316s we won't get to, they're very powerful as believers also. I mean, how cool would it be for us to have Joel 316 be on our heart when we face a challenge in our life? Joel 316 says, the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel pretty cool. Or, or what might we avoid doing in our life if James 3.16 was on our heart? He says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Okay, so there's some power in these verses that are worth taking note of, maybe even memorizing, maybe even taking some time to let it mark you as a believer in Jesus. So for the next four weeks, what I want us to do is look at a few of these 316s and how they should mark us as a disciple of Jesus. 
to let them encourage us, to convict us in some ways, and maybe even challenge us to how we can live a little bit more like Jesus. And, and who knows, maybe there will be a fun, temporary marking that you will get at the end of this series to have 316 on you a little bit more. Hint, hint. Okay, so that just stay tuned for that. But what I do know is that time and time again, as I read these 316s, I found myself wanting to live out a 316 life for Jesus. And I pray that you will wanna do the very same thing too. So let's do this. Let's dive in together. In any series that is called 316, it must begin with the OG of all 316s, John 3.16, which as I said before, is probably a scripture that you know or you would say that you know. But let's think about that for just a second. In the Old Testament, there is the, a scriptural equivalent to John 3.16, and it's known as Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You would see Deuteronomy 6, 5. You might even see it at like a, uh, you know, like at a, like at a soccer game if it was way back in the day, if that sport even existed back then, they'd probably uphold up Deuteronomy 6, 5 back in the day. Because it was memorized, it was recited by young Jewish girls and boys from the moment they could even speak. And Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five tells us this. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Deuteronomy six, five is known as the Shema. It was a recited prayer as a reminder of God's place and power in the life of someone who was a Jew. But I realize that human nature is very universally corrupt. So I think it's safe to say that these little boys, these little girls, probably would say the Shema half-heartedly more times than not. Like, no doubt they would have gone through the motions of reciting it, much like a sibling being forced to tell their other sibling they love them after a fight, right? Oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, right? You know, I love you, right? Yeah, I get it. But even though these kids were saying the Shema, when they were saying it, they were describing the correct posture of your heart towards the almighty God of the universe, the meaning would get lost if you don't grasp the words that you're actually saying. So the very same thing could be true about John 3.16. Great verse, fantastic verse, one of the best ones in the Bible. It's a verse that so many of us know well. We say, but do we really? Do we really comprehend what this verse means? Do we really know the totality of the message that it's trying to teach us? Do we really understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus as we read John 3.16? But if we could peel it apart a little bit more, I think that we could find out a little bit more closely what it really offers, and it really offers us gold as believers in Jesus Christ, just this one verse. But for starters, have you ever considered this, though? Have you ever considered that according to the NIV app, that translation of the Bible, of John's Gospel, Jesus didn't actually say John 3.16. Now, hold on. I know you already have that email open to talk about the tattoos and everything. Let me just don't add in heretic to that or anything like that. I have no hair nor ticks, so I don't want any of that. So I just, I, I just want you to think about something. In most Bibles, the words of Jesus, if you, if you know, what, the, the words of Jesus are what color in the Bible? They are, they're red, okay? They're red. So if you look closely at John 3, you're going to see that the last words spoken by Jesus, the red words, uh, are verses 14 and 15. And there Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Okay, so Jesus is referring back to an Old Testament point, point in time. He's connecting a moment that happened in the camp of the Israelites with the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And the words that are in verse 15 are very similar to the words that we find in verse 16, if you think about it. They both have eternal life language in them. 
They both have a universal inclusivity to that, meaning everyone can hear them. They both have a cent they're both centered around belief or believing. They both are very similar. But here's something interesting I noticed, again, in the NIV translation of John 3.16. You'll notice that the words switch from red, which are Jesus' words, to black between verses 15 and 16. So what this means is that the NIV translation switches from quoting Jesus in the red to these author's words in the red because now we're talking about what the author thinks. Now, let's be complete, I'm gonna be completely transparent with you here. Uh, a lot of the other translations do attribute those words to Jesus. They would be red words in other translations. But whether he did or did not say these exact words doesn't take anything away from the power that's found within them. But in the NIV, the words aren't red, but they're black. And I thought that was interesting to consider for a second. Now, you might be saying, why are you such a nerd, and why do you care so much? Shouldn't you just read your Bible and just be done with it? Right? Okay, I'm a nerd. I'm sorry. But here's the deal. Here's the reason it's important. Because of who the author is, John. I know it's hard to believe that the Gospel of John would be written by a guy named John. Shocking. I know. But it is. It's John. And John was very important to Jesus. John tells us in John 13 that he was the disciple that Jesus loved the most. John chapter 19, while Jesus is dying on the cross, Jesus looks down at John and says, I need to take care of my mom when I'm dead. So John was massively important to Jesus in his life. John was the first of the 11 disciples to get to the empty tomb after Jesus resurrected. He was part of the disciples that began the first church. He was a missionary for the gospel. He was a pastor in Ephesus for a church there. He was actually dropped in boiling oil to try to kill him for his faith in Jesus Christ, but he survived. They ended up uh, putting him on an island in Patmos, and they wanted him to die there, still didn't die, drug him back, and he died of old age in Ephesus, all because John loved Jesus, and he would eventually be called the apostle of love due to how much he talked about love throughout all of his writings in the New Testament. But that's not how John's life started, though. So John was a fisherman in his family business with his brother James before he became a follower of Jesus. But he was not like the gentle, passive man with the gray beard and the stick pole, you know, just kind of chewing on a piece of straw or something. Apparently, he and his brother were a bit passionate in their life. They had a bit of an edge to them. And the reason I know that is, as you look in Mark chapter 3, you'll see Jesus uh, kind of rattling off the names of all 12 disciples for the very first time. And when you get to James and John, Jesus adds something that I think is highly important. Um, what you're going to see is in Mark chapter 3, we get to read this, and it says, as he's listing them off, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder, right? So when John met Jesus for the first time, he most likely was part of our biker gang, not a Bible study, right? Son of thunder. But yet Jesus still called John, son of thunder, to come and follow him. Despite his fisherman's mouth, he probably had, maybe even a spotty record, Jesus saw something in him that made him say, I want you. And for all of us out there, me included, hand in the air, that have a less than perfect past, I'm grateful for this fact. I am so grateful that my past does not have to define my future when Jesus is in the picture. I'm grateful that being a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean that I have to start off with a clean and spotless record. In fact, can I just ask that of you right now? 
Has that ever stopped you from wanting to know Jesus? Have you, have you ever felt like you couldn't connect with him or connect with God because of your sticky past? Have you ever thought that Jesus was for other people? Right, like, like perfect people. You know, people that play the acoustic guitar and know really big Bible words and, and only swear when it's like fiddly dingle bomb. You know, that, there's their swear. You know what I'm talking about? Like you only think it's for the perfect people. But what you see in the life of John is that isn't true at all. In fact, when you read this Bible time and time and time again, Jesus chooses to hang out with people that no one wanted to hang out with. Luke chapter seven, Jesus actually spells this out. He says, the son of man came eating and drinking and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was known for hanging out with people he shouldn't hang out with. But think about this also. Another nugget to kind of think about. Did you know that since John was fishing, when Jesus found him, that he was considered a rabbi reject? Yeah, yeah, because about that time, um, whenever um, little Jewish boys would be, about the time, they would, they would choose a rabbi to follow, and that was kind of what you would do as a Jew. But the thing is, is that he hadn't been selected by another rabbi or teacher at this time. So when, so the fact that John was still on the market to be able to follow Jesus meant that he was like the last pick and kickball. Yeah, Jesus loves choosing the last picks. He does it on purpose. And the reason is this. I want you to really grasp this. Jesus doesn't focus on what you've done without him, but who you could be with him. Let that sink in. Jesus doesn't focus on who you are without him, all the stuff that you've done and all the negative, right? He just sees what you could be with him. He's like, that's the potential that I see. You, you don't, did you know that you don't have to, to be the sum of your worst mistakes? You don't. You could be known for your best decision that you ever made when you chose Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That when you are forgiven by Jesus, you are free to walk in a brand new life with him. Guys, that is the potential that Jesus sees in you and in me. And John got to experience that firsthand. Because as this son of thunder started to follow Jesus, he began to see a brand new way of life. And he would become one of Jesus's, if not his closest friend on the entire earth. And as a result of that, John saw some of the most amazing things you can ever imagine. Saw Jesus walk on water feed 5,000 people, saw him uh, heal a lame, bunch of lame people, saw him uh, heal people that were blind. He heard him preach the most epic sermons ever. He was one of the disciples that was part of the group that got sent out by Jesus to go and kind of share the love of God. He saw Jesus go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a bunch of snobby religious guys. He saw Jesus transfigure on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Jesus crucified on a cross, placed in a tomb, resurrect three days later, and ascend into heaven. John saw Jesus touch the untouchable, speak to the unspeakable, love the unlovable, and forgive the unforgivable. That's what John saw. Not bad for a guy that was on the front row of the Sons of Thunder struggle bus when Jesus first met him. Not a bad deal. And, and because of that long journey with Jesus, from lost to found, it should make that much more sense by the time we get to John chapter three, verse 16, that John would want to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Because John was able to see all of this come into crystal clear focus right in front of his eyes. Now, here's the deal. Um, a lot of times when you're studying your Bible, sometimes you buzz past things really, really quickly, you know, really, really, really quickly. And sometimes you just kind of burn through it to kind of get through it. Um, and here's the deal. I just want to tell you that God's not really interested in quantity. He's really interested in quality. He wants to, to really know you to know him and know his scripture. And so here's a small way that you can slow down and learn scripture in a different way is if you actually take it a word at a time, a word at a time. So let's break down John 3, 16, one word at a time and just see what powerful things that are, are, are there. So for instance, let's begin with this first word in four. Four. Now, four represents purpose, intention, movement toward a goal. It's, it's saying that there is a determined plan. There's movement that's happening, not a passive action that may or may not happen. No, he's saying four. It's going to happen four. For what? For, for God, he says. For God. For God. Now, this shows that this determined plan, this four plan, was a, the plan of action was defined and was created by God. Not by us. We can't save ourselves. But only by the intentional movement of God can he act on our behalf in order to save us. So for God, but the important part is this next part. He says, so loved. For God, so loved. It screams to us that God didn't just act out of obligation, or pity, but out of something far deeper, out of love. And the strongest force that is on this, in this world is without question, love. And, and I love that God didn't just love us, but he says that God so loved us that his passion and love for us was deep within him and it poured out in his amazing act. But who did he love? For God so loved, but who did he love? He loved the world, the world, that's pretty amazing. God's action of love has no limit. It is for the entire world, a world that he made from the very beginning to be very good, but it turned out to be very bad because of our sin. And this shows that God's love is not exclusive to a select few people that are perfect or rich or healthy or, or popular, but it's available to everyone, to the world. It's pretty cool. But now this next word is interesting. For God so loved the world that, and you're like, for crying out loud, are we going to do every word? Yeah, but think about this. That is important. Like, that is a word that describes action that was planned and now is going to be put into motion. Because for a plan to have movement, you can't just have it be on paper. Like it has to have, it can't just be a good idea. It needs to have teeth to it. So God's plan of love for the world needs a that. So it would be placed into action and not just be a good idea. For God so loved the world that, what? What did he do? He gave. He gave. The plan that was gonna be put into motion was not something to be to taken from us, but to be given to us. Even though we had taken the very good of his creation and tainted it with our very bad sin, God still chose to give, uh, give through his love for us. That's amazing. Right? He said he gave. What did he give, though? He gave his. He gave his. 
Unlike the other gods of the time who desired that some, everyone must give, that man must give to the gods to appease them, God says, no, 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 I'm going to give from myself. This would be the sacrifice that came from him and by him alone to who? The world. And what he chose to give still should stagger every single one of our minds. He chose to give his one and his only son. One and only son. God would give of the only one of what he had. There was no extras, there was no backups. He gave the one thing that he had and that was his son. God loved us, the world, so much that he gave from himself his son. He chose us over his son out of his deep love for us. But why? But why? Well, here comes that word again, that. That. Again, that. It implies action that is expected to be taken. Just as for God so loved the world that, now that God gave his one and only son that, there is an expected action to be made in return for what was just said. That God gave his one and only son all in hopes that we would respond to this gift. And how do we respond? It says, whoever believes, he says. Whoever believes. Again, that's amazing. That there is no limit to who can respond to this gift that God gave. Right? We've already seen it. He says, for the world, and then we have whoever. He's saying it twice in one verse. That God's love has no bounds for those that want to, very important, believe. Believe. Anyone can believe, but in who? He says, in him. In, in him, in him, in Jesus, God's one and only son. That is who our belief must be directed towards. Not our good works, not our ability to be really, really good people, not in the culture, not in our hard work just to get through it and stick to it and do what we've gotta do, no. In Jesus, in him is who our belief should be in. But now, but why? Why does that matter? Why? Because, he says, so that we shall not perish. Shall not perish. He says he doesn't want anyone to perish, which means that if, you, again, you have to think about Scripture, that if this is what he's saying, the negative is also true. That means that without belief in Jesus, we will perish. So God is saying that there are consequences for our actions, for our sin, and that without belief in Jesus, we will perish. But thank goodness for John 3.16 that says, with Jesus, belief in Jesus, we shall not perish. This is the trade that God's one and only son, Jesus, made with us. He takes our perishing and gives us, he takes our perishing and he takes our death in exchange, he gives us something very interesting. He gives us eternal life. Are you kidding me? That we receive eternal life from perishing to not perishing, from death to life, from sinner to be forgiven. He gives us all of that. Why? How? How does he do it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's how he does it. And that's why I love that maybe these words aren't the red letters in the, red letters in the Gospel of John because in a way, John 3, 16 
is John telling the world his testimony. That he was in the world and he was a son of thunder moments away from perishing. But by God's grace, he received the gift of God's only son. That John believed in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And because of that, he knows that he now has eternal life. It wasn't just that John might have been quoting Jesus, but that John was articulating what he knew to be true of Jesus by way of his testimony of his own life. And and check this out. This eternal reality impacted him so much that he wrote almost an identical phrase in another letter that he wrote, 1 John 3.16. And in 1 John 3.16, he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The bottom line was that John was changed by Jesus. And as a result of that, he wanted to make sure that others knew about the hope found in him so that they could be changed too. John was marked by Jesus. And now he was prepared to lay down his life for others just as Jesus had done for him. That is what a disciple of Jesus is all about. It's about discovering who Jesus is and accepting his gift of grace. It's about following him fully with your entire life, even when it's hard. And it's about leading others to do the very same thing so they could lead somebody else to do the very same thing. John 3.16 is an anthem of a disciple saved by grace trying to tell the world. And what is found in John 3.16 should be the mark of a disciple of Jesus. And it actually shows us this, that a disciple remembers who they were before Jesus, is grateful for who they become in Jesus, and desires to tell others about Jesus. That's what a disciple is. How John went from a son of thunder to the disciple of love is only by the grace of Jesus in his life. And so the fact that John 3.16 may or may not have been said by Jesus, maybe by John, shows us how deeply These words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Those words showed how much it impacted the life of John. So much so that he would give up his life to tell the entire world that message. As a disciple of Jesus, we need to be marked by this 316. We need to be bold in our faith while sharing that transformation with others. Because a disciple remembers who they were before Jesus, is grateful for who they become in Jesus, and desires to tell others about Jesus. That's what we should be marked by. So we're actually gonna try to do something different as part of our uh, sermon time and our uh, time together each week. And what I want us to be able to do is, is we, we wanna be a tag you're at church, which means that we wanna be doing something with what God has told us to do. So each and every week, what I'm gonna have you do is if you could, just open up that app that you have, and each week we're gonna ask you what your tag you're at moment is. What do you feel God is kind of leaning towards you to do? And so if you have your apps open, I'd love for you to open that in a second, right now if you would. And I'm gonna ask you to think about taking at least one step this week And I'm gonna give you three options of things to do, but I at least want you to take one of these. First off is I want you to memorize John 3.16 or 1 John 3.16 this week. Just just commit it to memory. Maybe print it off. You've got the little thing right there. You can print it off. You can put it in your wind, you know, right by your, uh, in your car somewhere, or maybe on your mirror at home. But just to be able to memorize that and and commit that to memory. 
Second thing I'll challenge you to consider is to take, towards, take steps towards being a gritty faith Christian. We talked about it last week, and that's the idea we wanna be able to give, serve, gather, and engage in the community here at Crossroads. Are you ready to take that next step? We'll help you do that. And then the final thing is, share your story of Jesus with your one this week. Just, just share your story. Find one of those three things. Maybe you're gonna go varsity and do them all. That's awesome. But just take at least one. Take at least one and commit that to have a tagger at moment to do something with what you've heard today, what Jesus is telling you to do. Now, I, I, I wanna kind of end with a couple things. And the, the first thing that I just would love for you to know is that I, I was a son of thunder too before I met Jesus. And, and, and here's the thing. My son of thunder story was I, I, I wasn't you know, found in a ditch somewhere. I wasn't an alcoholic. I didn't have a, you know, a needle in my arm. I didn't you know, cheat on my wife, like n- nothing like that. I, my, I was a son of thunder, but I was a son of religion. That was my thunder, was religion. I'll tell you, growing up, I mean, I was just a good kid. Man, I did all the churchy things. I was there all the time. I looked like a great Christian. I, I was the one that didn't swear or any of that stuff. And, and, and it was interesting, because when I went to college at Nebraska and I was playing baseball at the time, I remember I went to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and I was there and thinking, you know, rock and roll and do the same thing I was doing in high school, went to FCA there. And all of a sudden, the leader of the FCA, his name was Darren Duran, came and tapped me on the shoulder and he just says, hey, Ryan, so glad that you're here with us and a part of FCA. Just wanna let you know you're not a Christian, but if you ever wanna talk about that, I'd love to do that. Like, what are you talking about? I'm a good kid. I'm, I was the voted class brown noser. Like, I'm good. Like, I ain't, right? So I marched over to Darren Duran. I was like, hey, 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 hey. What are you talking about? He goes, yeah, 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 you're a great guy, but you've never accepted Jesus as your savior. You haven't really stepped across that line of faith. And until you do that, you're, you're not a Christian. I'd love to talk with you about that, but I just wanted you to know. And it bothered me enough to be able to dig into it. And he was right. So I remember on Thanksgiving break, my freshman year of college, I went home and I walked to the front of that church and the little church that I went to in Rapid City, South Dakota. And I got baptized in front of an entire church that thought I was already a Christian. But I was a son of religion that needed Jesus. So I say that to you that there is, everybody needs Jesus. In every shape or form, we all need Jesus. We'll never be good enough. You'll also never be bad enough that you can't find Jesus because Jesus loves us all. Remember, the world everyone who believes. And the other thing I think that's important is that the message of the gospel, the message of John 3.16 is universal. In every language, in every tongue, it's universal. Because again, God sent his one and only son for the world, but whoever will believe will not perish. So in this final element that we're gonna do right before we take communion is you're gonna be able to hear John 3.16, awesome song that we've got. But you're also gonna hear it spoken in many different languages and a couple different ways. And I want you to have the, the global effect of what Jesus died for come into your mind. So you can appreciate the width and the depth and the love of Christ for the world, but also for you. As we prepare our hearts for communion, I'd ask that you just think about that and pray with me now. Father, we love you. And God, I just ask right now that in a room this size, and for those that are joining us online, I just realize that there are people here that, that don't know you, Jesus, that have never said, I wanna follow you, Jesus, in my life, that we think that we're really good and we're, good, we're covered, or that we're so bad that you would never wanna know us. Both are lies. 
And so today I pray, Father, that you would cut through the lies, your spirit would work. And that for those that might not know you, that they would simply just say, God, I, I realize today I'm a sinner. And my life has separated me from you. That I am on the path to perishing, not to not perishing. And I need you. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. I believe you died on a cross for my sins, that you resurrected from death three days later, that you ascended to heaven to prepare a place for me, and that you give grace to me, a sinner. And so God, I just pray that you would be with those that have crossed the line of faith to say, Jesus, you're my Savior, that have repented of their past, they've embraced their future, and now they wanna follow you fully with their life. Move in this place, allow that to happen. May John 3.16 be the anthem of their testimony too. And might we all be marked by your word. Might we all be disciples that wanna make disciples that wanna change the world for you. And I pray that you would help us to do that every step of the way. But may we hear the words of John 3.16. May they penetrate our hearts and impact us. Prepare our hearts for communion now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week on the Crossroads Grace podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. If you are interested in getting involved in our community or want to find out more information, visit us online at crossroadsgrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Grace podcast.